Church, Andover Campus, in Lexington, Kentucky. It is our prayer that as you listen today, you will be encouraged, challenged, and equipped to be all God has for you. We invite you to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at either 8.30 or 11 o'clock a.m. at our Todd's Road campus near the Hamburg area of Lexington. Would you pray with me? Lord, open our hearts and minds to hear the word that you wish us to hear, that our hearts might be oriented to you, and that in all things we might worship you, the very one who knit us together. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. If we went out on the street and asked Joe Person about some various Bible stories, I'm not sure many of them could name the three children of Hosea and Gomer. Uh, Jezreel, not my people, and not, no compassion. I don't think that's common knowledge. Uh, if we ask them, who was the person helping out Ezra and Nehemiah? I'm not sure Zerubbabel just rolls off their tongue. Um, what did Ezekiel have to cook his bread over? Most people aren't going to say feces. That's obvious. Um, but if we said, tell us about what the Bible says about creation, the beginning of things, most people, even non-Christians, could give us some account of what the Bible says in Genesis 1 and 2, that uh, God began his creative work and took where there was nothing and began to give it shape, that there was formlessness and void, and now there were things, that he brought light and gave us day and darkness and gave us night, that he uh, gave the earth and then put plants upon it, gave things to eat the plants, the, the animals of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, and that in the climactic act of creation, he created humanity, male and female, bearing the full image of God in themselves, that uh, when you saw people, you saw God. And then God said they are very good. Most people have some kind of sense of that story. And then they know that our next uh, thing is we immediately turn the page and say, well, the snake came on the scene and the, the people uh, sinned. I'd like us to imagine the time between those two acts. Uh, when the, the fall story starts, it says that God was walking in the cool of the evening in the garden. I, I'd like to use a little holy imagination and think what it must have been like in that time between creation and the fall. The time where the very image bearers of God walked in this utopic garden with God. That it wasn't strange to just round the, round the elm tree and there is the very creator of everything standing uh, in your presence. That you don't have to seek where is God because God is right there with you. I'd like to sit and dream about how long was it between creation and the fall. You know, the text acts like Boom, they were created and they went and ate the fruit. I've got to imagine that this was some length of time. I'm, I'm, is it years that they've been dwelling with God and enjoying this perfect relationship where uh, they just, they look out and see God and God looks out and sees them where uh, this is clearly a beautiful thing. And then one day, after however long, the deceiver talks to those who are very good. The ones created from the dust of the ground to bear the very image of God and says, don't you want to be just a little more like God? And they think, well, absolutely, yes. We, 
We should be more like God. We should, we should do this one more thing so we can be just like God, and he can't have this. And, and so they do. They do what is uh, always the first thing we say. You know, they eat the fruit, and their eyes are open. They know good and evil. And the image of God just gets a little bit marred in them. This uh, very real witness to our God looks just a little different. It's still still bears witness to God. Humanity still has the image of God fully in them, but it's just a little harder to see. And it's harder to see because humanity decided that they knew how the relationship with God should work. See, humanity and the divine had wandered together in this perfect, utopic setting, but humanity thought they knew better. And so now they're dictating their relationship with God. It never stops. The whole of Scripture is the story of God and his image bearers and how at every turn the image bearers think that they know better than God. Sin spirals out of control. We have the Noah and the flood story. God makes covenant with Abraham and says, I'm going to make you a nation and the people and a blessing. And Abraham can't fathom it. We have no kids. Sarah actually laughs. How are you going to make me pregnant? They think they know more than God about what he can do and who he is. Generations later, the people are enslaved in Egypt. God brings them out of Egypt with Moses. He delivers them literally through parted waters and they get out into the wilderness. God begins to give them terms of how this relationship should look now. And before he has finished saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me and you should make no idols. They have made an idol. Moses isn't down the mountain and they're melting their gold and silver because we need some way to worship. We need something that looks like God. Now remember, this is the very image bearers of God making a new image for God. They finally enter the land and we have this period of judges where uh, we have the cycle of good judges who remember Yahweh and bad judges who promote worship of other gods who say, uh, let's worship Baal, let's worship Asherah. They think they know better about how the divine and the human should relate. Uh, they have King Saul and King David, and then Solomon decides that uh, the best thing to do would be consolidate power in the ancient Near East and marry lots of foreign wives and take on their gods. Because if one god is good, lots of gods are better. The nation begins to unravel. It divides to Judah in the south and Israel in the north. And uh, in Scripture, we only see three of the kings actually turn their hearts back to Yahweh. That the common critique of the kings is that they don't seek after the God of David. That they worship Baal. They worship Asherah. That they uh, make high places. And so the prophets come on the scene to invite Israel back to their one true worship. To the worship of Yahweh. The one who created them in his image and called them very good. The one who has been with them at every turn. Jeremiah today. Listen to the Lord's word, people of Judah, all you families of the Israelite household. This is what the Lord says. What wrong did your ancestors find in me that made them wander so far? They pursued what was worthless and became worthless. They didn't ask, where's the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us through the wilderness and the lands of the deserts and ravines and the land of drought and darkness? in a land of no return where no one survives. I brought you into a land of plenty to enjoy its gifts and goodness, but you ruined my land. 
you disgraced my heritage. If you, if you didn't think I was here, why didn't you at least ask where I was? But your turn is to abandon me. The priest didn't ask, where is the Lord? Those responsible for the instruction didn't know me. The leaders rebelled against me. The prophet spoke in the name of all, going after what has no value. If the people can't get it right, surely the leaders of the church can, leaders of Israel can, right? Uh, they'll, they'll at least say, where is God? But the critique is that they don't even ask, that they wander away and worship other gods. This is why I will take you to court and charge even your descendants, declares the Lord. Look to the west as far as the shores of Cyprus and to the east as far as the land of Kedar. Ask anyone there, has anything this odd ever taken place? Has a nation switched gods though they aren't really gods at all? Go ask any nation. This is absurd. It's like when you're... Uh, when you're talking to your kid and they're just keeping all messing up and you're like, this is, really? Has anything this crazy ever happened? Go, go to these other people and even they'll say that this is absurd. My people have exchanged their glory for what has no value. Be stunned at such a thing, heavens. Shudder and quake, declares the Lord. My people have committed two crimes. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they have dug wells, broken wells that can't hold water. Not only have they left Yahweh behind, but they've started building other things to try to replace Yahweh. They're not just not even worshiping the one in whose image they're created. They are building new things to worship. The prophets always call people back to a right heart with God, but they don't do it. And so God executes his judgment, and they go into exile in Babylon for an entire generation, 70 years, trying to get their hearts right, to give a, a, new, uh, a new beginning to this experiment of humanity. No sooner has Persia allowed them to begin entering the land do they begin taking foreign wives again. Do they begin seeking uh, to worship other gods? They haven't built the walls of the temple, and they're already committing idolatry. The story is a story after story after story of humanity thinking they know how to manage the divine instead of trusting the divine who, one, who created him in his very image. And it's not just uh, Judeo-Christian beliefs. Everybody uh, seeks uh, something uh, to represent that which they wish to worship. Uh, in in Greco-Roman culture, there was a god at every corner. Your city would have your uh, patron god. You might have Artemis or Xerxes or Zeus or whomever that you would worship. Uh, Paul, uh, one of his speeches is recorded in Acts chapter 17 at Mars Hill. People of Athens, I see that you are very religious in every way. As I was walking through town and carefully observing your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. What you worship is unknown, I now proclaim to you. God, who made the world and everything in it, is Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't live in temples made with human hands, nor is God served by human hands as though he needed something, since he is the one who gives life, breath, and everything else. 
From one person, God created every human nation to live on the whole earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their lands. God made the nations so they would seek him, perhaps even reach out to him and find him. In fact, God isn't far away from any of us. In God, we live, move, and exist. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, as God's offspring, we have no need to imagine the divine being as like a gold, silver, or stone image made by human skill and thought. God overlooks ignorance of these things in times past, but now directs everyone everywhere to change their hearts and lives. This is because God has set a day where he intends to judge the world justly by a man he has appointed. God has given proof to all of this, to everyone, by raising him from the dead. And if you doubt it, look at the resurrected Christ. Hear this, you people of Athens. God is not contained in your box of silver or stone. God is the one who created silver and stone. Change your hearts, everyone, everywhere. It's one of those passages that you read it and you think, I wonder how that applies. Most of us don't have a smelting pot in the backyard where we're burning uh, brass or bronze into our own castings. I haven't figured out stone carving quite yet, though it does seem intriguing. Uh, you know, idolatry doesn't uh, happen in those ways, right? Who has an Asherah pole in their backyard? None of us, right? Have you ever had anything that uh, becomes the object of your worship? That you would say, I've turned my heart more towards this than uh, doing whatever God would have for me? Raising the best possible child that can do uh, everything and be the most successful. Being uh, the titan of industry and being the best where we rise to the top. Growing worship attendance at your church so the bishop would be proud of you. There are lots of things uh, that can be idols in our lives that look nothing like a stone casting. That look nothing like uh, an Asherah pole or like a high place. If it's hard to imagine what in our lives might seem idolatrous, maybe we can look at what some symptoms of idolatry are. In Romans 1, Paul actually quotes this passage about exchanging the things that were good for the not good and says, and then here's what happens uh, to those people who are idolatrous. Since they didn't think it was worthwhile to acknowledge God, God abandoned them to a defective mind to do inappropriate things. They were filled with all injustice, wicked behavior, greed, and evil behavior. They're full of jealousy, murder, fighting, deception, and malice. They were gossips. They slander people. They hate God. They're rude and proud and they brag. They invent new ways to be evil and they're disobedient to their parents. They're without understanding, disloyal, without affection, and without mercy. That starts to feel a whole lot more real than Asherah poles to me. Um, I look at a list like that and can start to think back to many points in my life and see these signs of idolatry, these effects uh, kind of rippling out of our heart, not worshiping the one true creator. Uh, I, I've never cast bronze, but I've sure been jealous. I've been angry. I know I've promoted injustice at points in my life. If we were all honest and we took a, a serious inventory, there's a good chance that all of us have demonstrated one of these signs of idolatry, Right? 
And Paul told us what to do. Change. Simple as that, right? Change. Everybody everywhere, change. I've been reflecting on what we as the church do to drive out idolatry. We do lots of good things. I love discipleship groups. I love where we go and learn. I love groups where we go and reflect on the state of our souls. I love service opportunities where we go and live out the gospel. But I think there's one non-negotiable, one thing that literally holds back idolatry, and that's our worship. Because what is idolatry if nothing but worshiping something else other than the creator God? Idolatry is saying, I know how to manage the divine instead of letting the divine shed his light on me. And so throughout time, the church has gathered together in corporate worship, not so that we might be fed, but so that we might glorify God and name him as the very object of our worship. That in doing so, we are changed and transformed, but that we give all glory to God. Glory being the very reflection of God. It's at church that the image of God in us is made just a little bit clear as we are gathered in by the Spirit in worship, as the Spirit literally draws us in, as the Word of God is proclaimed and we hear what it means to be God's people and then we respond and then the Spirit fills us and sends us out. We can do lots of very good Christian things outside of corporate worship. I hope you all go on a retreat sometime and spend time in silent prayer. I hope we practice Lectio Divina and Bible study and I hope we do these things, but those are not corporate worship. They are amazing spiritual disciplines. There's just no analog for worship. We come together as the body of Christ to worship the one in whose image we are created. Uh, we're in the series of looking at where God is building things up and tearing things down. And where we see a people committed to gathering and worship together, we see things being built up. But let's also be really realistic. I'm not naive enough to think that the world isn't getting busier, isn't putting more demands on our time, isn't saying that uh, this is abnormal. It is. And it's a tension that we're going to have to journey with together that uh, the world says, I don't care if gathering with the body is important to you. This is our only defense against idolatry. We will fail at it dramatically if we try to do something other than gather together and worship the creator God. God didn't need, he didn't need something made in his image to reflect him to the world because he already made us in his image to reflect him to the world. And it's at worship that that image gets clean just a little bit, that we become just a little more obviously the image of God. God has uh, always been near to his people from the garden when he wandered with them to the tabernacle through the desert to being in the temple to being enfleshed in Jesus Christ and being uh, given to us at Pentecost as the spirit. God has never been far from his people but in worship we enter this even thinner space between heaven and earth where the very presence of God is here and at the table we literally come and in some holy mystery we encounter the very person of Christ in the body and blood at this bread and cup. Friends, worship is our only response to idolatry. When we gather in the spirit, when we hear the word proclaimed and we respond and then we're sent out.
And today we respond at the table, coming to meet our God in whose image we were created. But as we come, we come as a people who have all borne the signs of idolatry. So we come in need of confession. Would you join me in our confession and pardon?